Chapter Eight of One of My Sons by Anna Catherine Green. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eight The Man Behind the Screen. Suddenly, one voice rang out in passionate protest Hope, hope, it was not I, it was not I. And Alfred, leaving his brothers, stood before his cousin with self forgetful gestures, expressing a denial which was half prayer. George flushed, and his fist rose. Leighton drooped his head in shame. Or was it sorrow? But the next minute he had that rebellious fist in his own clutch. Miss Meredith kept her eyes turned sedulously away from them all. I only want one of you to speak, the man who can exonerate his brothers by confessing his own guilt. Do not touch me. This to Alfred, whose hand had caught hold of her dress. With an air of pride, the first I had seen in him, the youngest son of Mr. Gillespie withdrew from her side and took up his stand on the farther side of the hall. "'You are quick with your suspicions,' he flashed out. "'What sort of men do you think us, that you should allow an incoherent phrase like this at the end of a letter, begun in health but finished in agony? Prejudice you to the death against persons of your own blood?' It would take more than that to make me think evil of you, Hope. It was a natural reproach, and it told not only upon her, but upon us all. The words which had precipitated this situation might mean much, and might mean little. Had the reputation of these young men been of a more stable character, or had no attempt been made to suppress this portion of the letter, Suspicion would never have followed the discovery of this incongruous addition to the half-finished business letter found in the typewriter. One of my sons, he... Was that an accusation of crime? George and Leighton were on the point of asserting not, and Alfred had just begun to swagger with an air of injured pride, when Miss Meredith, recovering herself, laid her hand upon her bosom in repetition of a former action and slowly drew forth a letter, the appearance of which evidently produced a new and still greater shock in the breasts of the three young men. "'I shall not try to vindicate myself,' said she. "'I have lived like a sister in this house, and you would have a right to reproach me, if it were not for what I hold here. Alfred, you have complained that the few words left in the typewriter by your dying father were incoherent and unsatisfactory.' Will you regard as equally meaningless this letter written four weeks ago? Sir, here she turned to the coroner, my uncle was ill a month ago. It was not a dangerous illness, but the remedies given. Oh, Dr. Bennett helped me to say it, were remedies we all knew to be dangerous if taken in too great quantities. One night, I cannot go on. He had reason to think his glass was tampered with and after that he wrote this letter and charged me with its delivery in case he, he, ah, uh, I need not say in case of what. You have seen his dear head lying low in the room over there. Only, as this letter is addressed to my cousins co-jointly, will you allow them to read it without witnesses, if they will swear to respect it and restore it in an unmutilated condition to your hands? It is the only favor I ask you to show them and this I humbly entreat you to grant, if only in recognition of what I have suffered at having precipitated this horror when I only meant to, to, 
she was sinking, falling, nay, almost at the point of death herself. But she reached out the letter, and the coroner, giving it one glance, handed it over to Leighton as the one least shaken by the calamity which had just overwhelmed the house. God forbid that I should deny to sons the privilege of being the first to read the last letter addressed them by their father. But he made no move towards drawing the curtain between himself and the room from which he was retreating, nor could he be said to have really taken his eye off any of them during the reading of this long letter. "'You see, I had need of a friend,' murmured Miss Meredith, swaying towards me. I gave her a commiserating look. Was ever a girl more unfortunately situated? Two, at least, of the men against whom she had felt forced to utter this denunciation of crime, loved her, or so I believed. Alfred passionately. George, with less show of feeling, but possibly with fully as much depth and fervor. "'You might have held the letter back,' I whispered. But she met me with a noble look. "'You mean if I have not drawn suspicion upon them by my first subterfuge? But with so much in their disfavor, how could I calculate upon another opportunity of seeing them all together? And they must read it together,' so my uncle told me. But he never thought it would be with police officers in the house. Here the coroner advanced to question her and I am happy to say that my presence gave her courage to bear up under the ordeal. This was what he elicited from her. She did not know what was in the letter. It had been written by her uncle while still on his sick-bed, and after an experience which I will not relate here, as it will be found more fully stated in the letter itself. This letter I will reproduce for you at once, though it was weeks before I knew its whole contents. George, Leighton, and Alfred I may not have been a good father, but I have at least been a just one, though each and all of you since coming to man's estate have given me great cause for complaint. I have never been harsh towards you, nor have I ever denied you anything from mere caprice or from an egotistic desire to save myself trouble. Yet to one of you my life is of so little value that he is willing to resort to crime to rid himself of me. Does this shock you, Leighton, George, Alfred? We are a Christian family, members of an honorable community, trained each and all in religious principles, you by the best, the sweetest of mothers. Does it move you to think that one of you could contemplate parricide and even attempt it? It moves me, and in two of you must awaken a horror the anticipation of which affords me the sole comfort now remaining to my doomed and miserable life. For nothing will ever make me believe that this act was a concerted one, or that the attempt which has just been made upon my life had its birth in more than one dark breast. One guilty soul there is among you, but only one, and least to the remaining two the accusation I have just made may seem fanciful, unreal, the result of nightmare or the effect of fever. I will relate what happened in this room last night, just as I related it to Hope when she asked me this morning why I seemed so loath to see you before you went out to your several lounging places. I was dozing. The lamp, which since my illness has never been turned out in my room, threw great shadows on wall and ceiling. I seemed conscious of these shadows, though I was half asleep but not so conscious that I was not aware of the light shining through the transom from the gas-jet near the top of the stairs. 
This light has always been company for me, especially in wakeful nights or when I found myself troubled by dreams or any physical distress. It seemed to connect me with the rest of the house, and, simple as it may seem to you, accounts for the cheerfulness with which I have declined the offers of my sons to sit with me during these last painful nights. I had no need of their company while this light shone, and as for pain, why, that is an evil which all men are called upon sooner or later to endure. I was resting then in this mild reflected light when suddenly it went out. This woke me, for the orders are strict that this jet be left burning till the servants come downstairs in the morning. But I did not stir in my bed. I simply listened. Though aroused and somewhat disturbed by this palpable disregard of my wishes, I exerted all of my faculties to detect the step I now heard loitering about my door. But it was studiously cautious and made no distinct sound in my ear. I did not like this, and listened still more intently, whereupon I heard the door open, and someone come in softly, and with long pauses such as were not wont to accompany the entrance of any member of my household. I was deciding whether to raise an alarm, or lie still and let myself be robbed of the money which I had just received from the bank, when I heard the whispered, Father, with which one and all of you approach me at night when you wish to ascertain if I am asleep or awake. Why did I hear myself called, and yet make no reply? What was in my heart, or what have I seen of late in your natures or conduct that I should remain quiet under this appeal, and lie there shut-eyed and watchful? I had no definite reason for doubting any of you. I knew you were in debt, and that two of you at least were in crying need of money but I hardly think I dreaded the rifling of my desk by the hands of one of my sons. Yet that approach, so gentle and so measured, the drawn-in breath, the shadow that grew and grew upon the wall, all these spoke of something quite different from the anxiety of a son keeping watch over a sick father's slumbers. The desk was near the window towards which my eyes were turned in open watchfulness, and I hoped by lying still to catch sight of the intruder's figure at the moment of his passing between me and the faint illumination, made on the curtains by the street lamp opposite. But the intruder did not advance in that direction. He passed instead to the little cupboard over the washstand, where, as you all know, my medicines are kept. This I was made aware of by the faint click made by one bottle striking another. George has come home ill, or Leighton has one of his terrible headaches, was the soothing thought which then came to me, and I found it difficult not to speak out and ask who was sick and what bottle was wanted. But the something which, from the first, had acted in the way of restraint upon me, held me still, and I remained dumb while that sneaking hand continued to fumble among the files and glasses. Suddenly a fear struck me a fear so far removed from any which I had ever before known, that my whole attitude of thought towards my sons must have undergone an instantaneous change. A gulf opening where an instant before was confidence and love. The medicine was kept there from which my nightly dose was prepared, a medicine which you have all heard declared by my physician to be a deadly poison which must be measured most carefully and given in only such doses as he had prescribed. Could it be that my son was feeling about for this? 
Had George bet once too often on that mare which will be his ruin? Or Leighton found his religion an insufficient cloak for his indiscretions which ever shunned the light of day? Or Alfred, the child of my heart, he whom his dying mother placed as a last trust in my arms, confounded the ennui of inaction with that weariness of life which is the bane of rich men's sons. I know the despairs that come in youth, and I quaked where I lay. But it was not upon self-destruction that this man at the cupboard was bent. I felt my whole frame tremble, and my heart sink in unutterable despair as he advanced, still quietly and with great pauses, up to the footboard of my bed, then around to the side, protected, as you know, by a screen, till he crouched out of sight but within reach of the small table where my glass stands with the spoon beside it, ready for my use if I grow restless and weary. To have turned, to have intercepted the creeping figure in its work, and thus have known definitely and forever which one of you had thus furtively visited my medicine cabinet before proceeding to my bedside, might have been the natural course with some. But it was not my course. I was not content just to interrupt. I wanted to know the full extent of what I had to fear. A remark which Dr. Bennett had once let fall recurred to me, transfixing me to my bed. If you were not a careful man, he had said in diagnosing my present illness, I should say that you had taken something foreign into your system, something which has no business there, something which under other circumstances, and in another man's case, I should denominate poison. It had seemed nonsense to me at the time, and I laughed at what I considered a fatuous remark, uttered with unnecessary gravity. But now that there was really poison in the house, and one of my own blood stood hiding behind the screen within a foot of my medicine glass, I could not but choke down the cry which this thought caused to rise in my throat, and listen for what might come. Alas, I was destined to behold with my eyes, as well as hear with my ears, the next move made by my unknown visitant. By the grace of God, or through some coincidence equally providential, the gas at this momentous instant was relit in the hall, and I perceived amid the old shadows thus called out upon the wall a new one, that of a hand holding a bottle, which, projecting itself beyond the straight line cast by the screen, was now stealing slowly but surely in the direction of the table on which stood my glass of medicine. I did not gasp or cry. Though feeling, consciousness even of my own unfathomable misery seemed lost in one instinct, to watch that hand. Would it falter? Should I see it tremble or hesitate in its short passage across the faintly illumined space upon which my eyes were fixed? Yes, some monition of conscience, some secret fear or filial remembrance made it pause for an instant. But even as my heart bounded in glad relief, and human feelings began to reawaken my frozen breast, it steadied and passed on. And though I could no longer see aught but a shadowy arm, I could hear one, two, three, a dozen drops falling into my drink a sound which, faint as it was, made the guilty heart behind the screen quake, for the hand shook as it retreated, and I beheld distinctly outlined on the illumined space before me the end of the semi-detached label which marked the special bottle on which the word 
poison is printed in large letters no further doubt was possible the medicine in my glass had been strengthened and by the hand of one of my sons which one in the misery of the moment i felt as if i did not care that any of you should seek my death was an overwhelming grief to me but as thought and reason returned, the wild desire to know just what and whom I had to fear seized me in the midst of my horror, mixed with another sentiment harder to explain, and which I can best characterize as a feeling of dread lest I should betray my suspicions, and so raise between my children and myself an insurmountable barrier. Subduing my emotion, and summoning to my aid all the powers of acting with which I had been by nature endowed, I moved restlessly under the clothes, calling out in a sort of sleepy alarm, "'Who's there? Is it you, George? If so, reach me my medicine.' But no George stepped forth. "'Leighton,' I cried petulantly, "'surely I hear one of you in the room.' But my son Leighton did not reply. I did not call for Alfred. I could not. He was the last son of his mother. Did I wrong the others in not uttering his name also? Meantime all was quiet behind the screen. Then I heard a quick movement, followed by the shutting of a door, and I realized that an escape had been effected from the room in a way I had not calculated on. That is, by means of the dressing-room opening out of the alcove in which my bed stands. I had thought myself a weak man up to that hour, but when I heard that door close, I bounded to my feet and attempted to reach the hall before the man who had thus escaped me could find refuge in any of the adjoining rooms. But I must have fallen insensible almost immediately, for when I came to myself I found the footboard of the bed within reach of my hand, and the clock on the point of striking two. I dragged myself up and staggered back to bed. I had neither the courage nor the strength to push the matter further at that time. Indeed, I felt a sort of physical fear, probably the result of illness, which made it quite impossible for me to traverse the halls and creep from room to room seeking for guilt in eyes whose expression up to this unhallowed hour had betrayed nothing worse than a reckless disregard of my wishes. Yet it was torment unspeakable to lie there in an uncertainty which threw a cloud over all my sons. For hours my thoughts ran the one gamut, George, Leighton, Alfred, clinging agonizedly to each beloved name in turn, only to drop into a dreadful uncertainty as I remembered the temptations besetting each one of you, and the readiness with which you all, from the oldest to the youngest, have ever succumbed to them. There was no determining point in the character of any of you which made me able to say in this solitary and awful communion with my own fears, this one at least is innocent. If I dwelt on George's generous good nature, I also recalled his wild extravagance and the debts he so recklessly heaps up at every turn he makes in this God-forsaken city. If some recollection of latent strict ways in open matters of conscience came to soothe me, there instantly came with it the remembrance of the various tales which had reached my ears of certain secret attachments which drew him into circles where crime is more than a suggestion, and murder a possible attendant upon every feast. Then Alfred, 
youngest of all, but the least youthful in his attitude towards the world and his fellow men. What honorable ambition had he ever shown calculated to give me solace at this awful time, and make the association of his name with a damnable crime an impossibility and an outrage? Meanwhile, my whole mental vision was clouded with the pictured remembrances of your faces as seen in childhood, in early youth, or at any other time, indeed, than the intolerable present. George's, when he brought home his first school medal. Leighton's, when he denied himself a new pair of skates that he might give the money to a crying street urchin. Alfred's, when the fever left him and his cheeks grew rosy again with renewed health. All these young and innocent faces crowded about me, awakening poignant suggestions of the change which a few short, short years had wrought in relations which once seemed warm and alive with promise. Then a group of frank-eyed boys. Now this awful question, which? It was not till an hour had passed that I remembered that the file had not been returned to the cabinet. In whose possession would it be found? Should I have a search made for it? I turned cold in bed at the debasing and intolerable prospect of acting as detective in my own house. Then the poisoned glass. It still stood beside me. If I left it untouched, it would show suspicion on my part, and suspicion might precipitate my doom. How could I avoid taking it without raising doubts as to my discovery of the trick which had been played so near me? In the feverish condition of my mind, but one plan suggested itself. Throwing out my arm, I precipitated the glass to the floor, over which I heard it roll, with extraordinary sensations. Then I waited for daybreak, in much the same condition of mind in which a man awaits his last hour. For my heart yearned over my sons, even while panting under the consciousness that one of them was a monster of ingratitude and innate depravity. When Hewson and the girls came down, and I heard the stir of life in the house, I rang my bell and asked for Hope. She came in with beaming face and a smile full of happiness. She had risen from a beauty sleep, and possibly because my thoughts had been so dark, I had never seen her look so bright and lovely. But her cheeks paled as she approached my bedside and noticed my miserable appearance, and it was with sudden anxiety she cried, "'What a wretched night you must have had, uncle. You look poorly this morning. You should have sent for me before.' Again I summoned up all my powers of acting. I knocked over my medicine in the night. Perhaps that is why I look so wretched. I did not sleep after four. You can say so, if any of the boys ask after me at the breakfast table. With a woman's solicitude, she moved around to my side, where the screen stood. Why, what's this? she exclaimed, stooping as her foot encountered some small object. I expected her to lift the glass. Instead of that, she lifted the bottle. It had been left there on the floor and not carried out of the room, as I had naturally supposed. I endeavored to look undisturbed, as if this bottle had been thrown over with the glass, but I failed pitiably. At the sight of her dear, womanly face and the affection beaming in every look, I broke down and raised my arms imploringly towards her. Come to my arms, I prayed. Let me feel one true head on my breast. 
the next minute i was conscious of having said a word too much her look which you all know and love changed and while she submitted to my caresses and even warmly returned them it was with an appearance of doubt which i almost cursed myself for having roused in that innocent breast why one true heart she repeated are there not others in this house george and alfred love you devotedly and little claire what child could show more fondness for a grandfather than she why had she not included leighton i endeavoured to write myself with some mechanical phrase or other but the attempt was not very successful and she was leaving the room in great disturbance when i called her hurriedly back i want you to smile as usual i gravely enjoined george's extravagances and alfred's caprices are no new story to you i have been thinking about them that is all but i had rather they did not know it i could not mention leighton's name either meantime she was standing there with the poison bottle in her hand i could not bear to look at it and motioned her to restore it to the cabinet as she did so i perceived her turn with half-open lips as if about to ask some question but she either lacked the courage or the will to do so for she proceeded to the cabinet with the bottle which she placed quietly on the shelf but almost instantly she took it up again why uncle she cried there is not as much here as there ought to be i am sure the bottle was half full last night and then i remembered it was she who prepared my medicine for me and i left it on the shelf she went on uncle how came it to be lying by the side of your bed did you try to strengthen the dose you know you ought not to dr bennett said that three drops in half a glass of water were all you could take with safety i had not a word to say my mind seemed a blank and no excuse presented itself the wish which i had openly cherished of seeing hope married to one of my sons clogged my faculties my protest confined itself to a slow shake of the head and a dubious smile she was far from understanding i think i will stay with you she gently suggested Nellie will bring my breakfast up with yours, and we can have a tete-a-tete meal at your bedside. But this did not chime in with my plans. No, said I, Nellie can stay with me if you wish, but I want you to go down. Your cousins will miss you if you are not there to pour the coffee for them. Alfred shows an astonishing punctuality of late, and George quite emulates his younger brother's precision and haste. Leighton was never late. Her cheek grew the color of a rose. Never before had I so much as suggested to her the secret wish you have one and all entertained ever since her beauty and affectionate nature brought sunshine into this cold dwelling. I was glad to see this color. At the same time I was made poignantly wretched by what it suggested. If Hope loved one of my sons, and he should be the one who had— I felt more than ever called upon to act warily. Here was someone besides myself to think of. Your mother is dead and in paradise, but hope is young, and the crushing weight under which I staggered could not well be borne by her. For her sake, if not for my own, I must locate the plague spot that to my mind spread defilement over my sons. I must know which of you to trust and which to fear, and that no mistake should follow my attempt at this. I made haste to ensure that no warning should reach you through any change in Hope's manner, 
so I reiterated my old command. Let me see you smile, said I, or I shall think you regard me as being in worse condition than I really am. Indeed, I am almost well, Hope. My disease has yielded to Dr. Bennett's treatment, and where I can rise above these sickly fancies, which are the effect, no doubt, of the powerful remedies I have taken, I shall be quite like my old self. After breakfast, let me see you here again. I may have some letters requiring an immediate answer. My natural tones reassured her. The force of my feelings had brought some color into my cheeks, and I probably looked less ghastly. She turned away with a smile. Alas, her face renewed its brightness and shone with sweet expectancy as she approached the door. Nellie brought me my breakfast, and I forced myself to eat it. My mind was regaining its equilibrium, and my will its power. Just as I was folding my napkin, Hewson came in. He had brought me in a special tidbit, prepared in the chafing-dish by Hope's own hands. But I could not eat it. The thought would rise that she had seen far enough into my mind to imagine I would dread eating anything she had not cooked for me herself. As Hewson was withdrawing, I asked if you were all well. His answer was an astonished, yes, at which I ventured to remark that I had heard someone up in the night. That was Miss Meredith, he explained. I heard her tell Mr. George at the breakfast table that she came down to your door about one in the morning to listen if you were quiet. She said she found the gas blown out in the hall, and that she lit it again. I had left the skylight open. It don't do these windy nights, sir. I was disturbed by this discovery. That she should have been at the door at a moment so fraught with danger and misery to myself was a thrilling thought. Besides, she might not have been so happy or so unhappy as to have caught a glimpse of the man who crept out of my dressing closet a moment later. Overcome by a possibility which might settle the whole question for me, I let Hewson go in silence, and when Hope came back, drew her gently but resolutely down on the bed at my side, and said to her with a smile, I have just learned how my dear girl watches over her uncle's slumbers. You are too careful of me. I had rather have you asleep. George's room is on this floor. Let him come and see how I am in the night, if you are so uneasy." "'George would never wake up without assistance,' said she. "'I could not trust you to his tender care, well-meaning as he is. "'Leighton, then, he's a light sleeper. "'I have often heard you say that you have heard him pacing the floor of his room "'as late as three in the morning. "'But he sleeps better now. "'Alfred might stop on his way in, but Alfred does not stay out as late as he used to. "'He comes in quite regularly since you have been ill.' Were her eyes quite true? Yes, they were as true as the sky they mirror. I grasped her hand and ventured upon a vital question. Who was up at the same time you were last night? I am sure I heard a man's step in the hall, just about the time you relighted the gas. Did you know about the gas? she asked. I found it smelling dreadfully, but I didn't encounter anyone in the hall. I guess you imagined that, uncle. Perhaps, was my muttered reply, as I wondered how I was to ask the next question. When did you go upstairs? I finally inquired. Oh, right away. I didn't wait a minute after I found you quiet. It was cold in the halls. Hewson had left the skylight open, and my trip after a match chilled me. Was your cousin Leighton's door open? 
I instantly inquired. Or did you hear any door shut after you went up? She leaned over me and looked anxiously into my face. Why do you ask so many questions, uncle, and in so hard a voice? Would there have been any harm in my cousins being up, or am I running across one of them in the hall? Not ordinarily, but last night. Here my weakness found vent. I must share my secret, if only as a safeguard. I could not breathe under the dreadful weight imposed upon me by this uncertainty, and she knew I had some dreadful tale to tell. This I was assured of by the white line creeping into view about her lips, and by the convulsive clasp with which she answered my clutch. Forgetting her youth, ignoring all the resolves I had made in the secret watches of the night, I drew her ear down to my mouth and gasped into it the few tell-tale sentences which revealed the dishonor of our house. I caught the thrill of anguish which went through her as I made plain the attempt which had been made upon my life and never shall I forget her eyes, as she slowly drew back at the completion of my tale, and surveyed me in the silent suspense which seemed to mirror forth my own deep heart question. Which? Sons, I could not answer the demand made by that look, nor can I answer it now. You all came in soon after, and each and all of you had something to say about the mischance of the night which had so visibly affected me and I did not dare to read your eyes. Brought face to face with you, I seemed to shrink from, rather than seek for, the unsettling of this dreadful question. Perhaps because I regard you with equal affection, perhaps because your mother's picture was visible over your heads, and it seemed like sacrilege to her memory to consider such a question under her loving and trusting eyes. At all events, you left me with my mind still in doubt, to confront hope again, and with her the wretched future which the night's experience had unfolded before us both. I found her filled with a confidence I could not easily share. She believed in the integrity of the man she held dearest, but she would not tell me which of you she thus loved, and I could only guess. But even this belief weakened a little as we talked together, and I soon saw by the arguments she used that peace and certainty would never be hers again as long as a doubt remained as to which of her cousins had conceived and perpetrated this criminal act. As for me, the future holds no comfort. I shall give each of you a thousand dollars tonight in celebration of my anniversary of marriage, and perhaps this will awaken the conscience of the one who loves my money better than my life. Then, though I shall not change my will, I shall publish abroad that I have had losses, which only a fortunate speculation can make good, and see if by these means the cupidity which came near costing me my life may not serve to ensure me a sufficiently prolonged existence for me to separate, in my own mind, the one black sheep from the white. But if these measures fail, if I am doomed to fall a victim to the unknown hand which I must henceforth see lifted over my life, if hopes, watchfulness, and my own vigilance cannot prevent the repetition of an act which, if once determined upon, cannot fail of fulfillment in a house like this, then this letter read by you all in concert must prove the punishment of the guilty one. And since none of you will read these lines except under these circumstances of death and crime, I hereby charge that guilty one to speak. 
and as he hopes to escape my curse and the wrath of an outraged deity, to avow his crime in her presence and in that of the two brothers, he will thus exonerate. Having done this, he may take or leave his portion of the estate. I shall be satisfied, and the God whose commandments he has doubly defied may forget to avenge a crime forgiven by its object. To my two sons, whose filial instincts have never been thus disturbed, I leave my blessing. May all happiness be theirs, whether this does or does not include the love of the dear girl whose future I have thus endeavored to clear. Archibald Gillespie I have inserted this letter here that you may understand the situation which ensued upon its perusal by the three brothers. We, who had not read it, were simply startled to note the way in which these three young men drew back as from a common center, as the last words fell from Leighton's well-nigh paralyzed lips. Then Alfred, in a rush of ferocious passion, bounded forward again, and striding up to George, shouted out in an awful voice, "'You are the man!' and struck him without mercy to the floor." End of chapter 8